Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Scripture says if we admit or acknowledge our sins to God, then he forgives us and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. So we make sure that we are in fellowship, ready to study the word, and we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Fathers, we've been reminded in these verses that have just been quoted, it is uh, through your word that we know your promises, and your promises strengthen us and give us comfort. And as we study your word, it teaches us about who you are and how we are to have a relationship with you. And Father, as we study these things this evening, we pray that you might give us clarity and that you might enable us to understand these things in ways that we haven't seen them before, that we might continue to grow and mature in our Christian life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, just so you don't think that we're completely lost our orientation to Genesis, we are studying Genesis, but we're sort of running down a little rabbit trail right now because as we studied through Joseph, and we've had a few interruptions with my trip to Kiev and then illness, as we studied Joseph, we saw that there is this interplay that's fascinating between Joseph and Judah, and Judah as the uh, third of third oldest brother of the twelve sons of of Jacob, has gone through a radical transformation by the time we get down to Genesis chapter forty two and forty three. And what causes that transformation? And how does a person change? And every now and then you'll hear somebody say, well, people don't ever really change. But what the Bible shows is that change is not only possible, change is expected in believers. That that is what the whole Christian life is about, is change, transformation from who we were as unbelievers to the image of Christ. And that change comes as a result of our volition in relationship to the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Now, as we look at Joseph of, or Judah, of course, as an Old Testament believer, he doesn't have the filling of the Spirit. He doesn't have the identification with Christ. He doesn't have all the spiritual assets that we have, but the fundamental principles 
of the spiritual life that were in operation then are still in operation, and that is the faith rest drill, and more uh, more basic than that, the whole issue of confession and repentance. And repentance is really a term that is so misunderstood and abused today, but it's a term that just summarizes that whole concept of change, recognizing that 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 which we have, the opinions we've held, the attitudes we've had, the behaviors that we've had, the things we like and dislike as unbelievers, and that still continues through a lot of our Christian life, is to be changed. And we have to come to this point of repentance, which isn't sorrow and remorse. It's, it's recognizing that there's a, a point of change. But one of the problems that gets confusing for people every now and then is this relationship between confession and repentance. And I pointed out last time that we have to remember that what confession does is it reorients us to the grace and the justice of God in that we get back in fellowship. Repentance doesn't have to do with getting in fellowship. Repentance is a doctrine that relates to spiritual growth. It has to do with that change that takes place from being a pagan unbeliever to becoming a believer and then growing in that post-salvation life. Now, we also have to remember one other thing, and that is that anything done when we're out of fellowship, when we're walking by means of the the flesh, is going to be wood, hay, and straw. It has no spiritual value. And according to Ephesians 5.16, we're either walking by the Spirit or we're walking by the flesh. There's no little bit of one, little bit of the other, partial one, partial the other. It's one or the other. Therefore, whatever we do at any point in time is either generated by the sin nature and a sense of autonomy or independence from God, or it is generated by dependence upon God as part of our walk by means of God the Holy Spirit as church-age believers. So any kind of moral change that takes place when we're out of fellowship is nothing more than that. It is in the energy of the flesh, and it has no eternal value. It is only what transpires when we're in fellowship walking by the Spirit that has spiritual efficacy and, and, and is a foundation for gold, silver, and precious stones and divine good. So we've been looking at this whole issue of confession to try to understand just what it is and what it isn't. And if you remember, I started off right before I went to Kiev, we went through a word study and saw that the foundational concept of homo legeo in the New Testament and uh, yada in the Old Testament, which is the word that we have in the second clause of Psalm 32.5, I will confess yada, Y-A-D-A-H, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, is the idea of simply admitting or acknowledging wrongdoing. That's all that's involved there. Nothing more. It doesn't include repentance. Some people try to come along and say, well, you know, if you're walking down the wrong path and you decide to confess your sin, you have, in one sense, repented. Well, that is true. You have changed your mind. But the Bible doesn't ever use repentance in that way. It uses it in, in terms of what happens after you confess, in terms of changing that thought pattern and that behavior or those habits 
that just gets you back out of fellowship. We're going to see an illustration of that from the Old Testament today. So you see in the in the synonymous parallelism of Psalm 32.5, I acknowledged my sin to you, saying, I will confess. So there's the synonym between those two words, and that's what confession is. And you see this again and again, and I thought that it was important to illustrate this from the Old Testament. Now, there are two key things. I went through a couple more last week, but just by way of review, there are two key passages in the Mosaic Law related to confession. The first is found in Leviticus. Okay, wait a minute. I forgot I had that slide up there. Those are the two different words that are used for acknowledge and confess. Yada. They're they're homonyms. They sound alike. Yada and yada. The first one means to acknowledge. The second means to, as used for confess, it primarily has the idea of declaration of something and is often used for a thanksgiving psalm. In fact, in modern Hebrew, a a variant of that is used for thank you. It's toda. And it just takes on a different prefix because of the form of the word. But it's that same idea. And in about eight or nine passages in the Old Testament, it has the idea of declaring wrongdoing. So the root idea in both of these words is to make something known or to declare something. And the context tells you uh, what that is. Now, Leviticus 16.21. This is the, the, the ritual of the scapegoat that took place at the Day of Atonement every year, Yom Kippur. And the high priest would take two goats, and he would cast lots to determine which of these goats, both of which were qualified to be sacrifices. They're without spot and blemish. And, of course, they are a picture of the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross. He takes these two goats before the Lord and cast lots, one will be chosen as the scapegoat, the other will be offered as a sacrifice, as a sin offering, according to verse 9. And then what Aaron would do is he would lay his hands on the live goat and confess over it. That's that word yada, Y-A-D-A-H. He would confess over it all of the iniquities of the children of Israel. There's no emotion. He's not putting on sackcloth and ashes. He's not... Uh, going through any uh, level of histrionics to reinforce his sincerity or anything like that, all he has to do is admit, to acknowledge, to identify what the Israelites had done in terms of violation of the law, <clears throat> their iniquities, avon, their sins, and their transgressions. That's a word that indicates uh, breaking the law. And he would... By putting his head on the goat, he is showing identification that that goat then is symbolically receiving those sins. And then he takes the goat and he sends it out into the wilderness. Now, the other goat is sacrificed as a sin offering. So the one that sacrifices a sin offering pictures the payment of the sin price by Jesus Christ on the cross. The goat that goes out into the wilderness pictures the removal of that, those sins, the forgiveness of those sins, so that they are no longer an issue between Israel and God, and they are removed. He goes out in the wilderness, and as the Scripture says, when we confess our sins, 
that our, God says, your sins are removed as far from me as the east is from the west. They're, they're forgotten. God forgets them, and we are to forget them. They're no longer an issue once they're admitted and acknowledged. We forget them. So that's our picture in the Old Testament of what happens in confession. It is an admission of guilt that we have done something. And then it's immediately forgiven, and it's not an issue anymore. Now, the next key passage that we looked at last time, which is foundational to understand the, con- the uh, confession prayers that we find later on in Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, which we're going through right now, is found in Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus 26 outlines the five stages of divine discipline that God warned Israel that he would take them through if they were disobedient. And we have these five different stages. Each one is uh, progressively worse than the previous stage as God's trying to get their attention. Until finally, if they continue in idolatry, he tells them in verses uh, 27 down through uh, 35, that if they continue to be disobedient, to be idolatrous, that God will remove them from the land. You have to understand these five stages of discipline within the context of two things, the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. These five stages of discipline don't apply to any other nation. None. No other nation goes through these cycles. They can be similar. There may be similar things, but they don't go through them. Why? No other nation has been given a promise of land like God has promised Israel. This covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, is for Israel only. It is not for uh, the Romans. It wasn't for the Greeks. It's not for Americans. It's not for Germans. It's not for anybody. God hasn't promised any real estate to any other ethnic group other than Israel. Well, he's given some to Moab and Edom and some of the cousins, other descendants of Abraham in that area around there, but but that's not but it's not in terms of this covenant. This is a covenant that outlines that they will enjoy the Abrahamic blessing of the land if they're obedient. And if they're disobedient, they will be removed from that land until there is a generation that is obedient. And so these stages of discipline relate specifically to Israel. And at the very end, there's the promise that eventually there will be a generation that does confess their sin, that does humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, that does go into obedience. And then at that time, God says, I will bring them back from all over the earth to my land, and they will stay in the land forevermore. That's that final return of Israel. So we have to understand the, the context of Leviticus chapter 26. And what's important here is to understand how this is translated, because it is usually translated poorly in most of your English translations. If you have the New King James, verse 40 begins, but if they confess their iniquity. Other translations say when they confess, but that when adds a temporal condition. Neither of those terms are in the original. That's why you have the italics there for the but, but the if should have been italicized also. There is no if, and let me give you, just hold on to this thought. When we get into uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, 
and we get into specifically the prayer of confession in Nehemiah 10, there's an if there also, as they are reciting this verse, there's an if there in the translations also, and it's put in italics. There's no if in the original. It should be translated this way, as you have on the screen. And they shall confess their iniquity. It, uh, we read in verse 39, Those of you who are left shall waste away in their iniquity in your enemies' lands. That's under the fifth stage of discipline. Also in their father's iniquities, which are with them, they shall waste away. And they shall confess their iniquity. It is a, it's prophetic. It's a, uh, uh, perfect, or excuse me, it's an imperfect in the, in the Hebrew indicating that, uh, it's a, it's actually a hithpael, uh, imperfect indicating a future, uh, time when they will confess their iniquity. And the word there for confess is the same word, it's the hithpael form of yada, meaning that they will admit or acknowledge their iniquity, and the iniquity of their fathers. So it's it's generational because this is dealing with national confession. In that they trespassed against me, that is, they violated the law by which they were hostile to me, when I in turn have been hostile to do or have been antagonistic to them. Uh, God's antagonism to them is because they have been arrogant and disobedient. And he says, when I, because I've been hostile to them and removed them into the land of their enemies, then at last shall their obdurate heart humble itself, and they shall atone. That's the New King James translation. Actually, it's not the word atone. It is the Hebrew word ratzah, which means to make amends for or to pay for. They shall make payment for their iniquity. That's the divine discipline. It's actually mentioned in verse 43. The land shall be left empty by them and will enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. So he says, Last their obdurate heart, humble itself, they shall make amends for their iniquity. Then, and that's the only time you have any kind of a, a temporal particle in the verse in the Hebrew. Then will I remember my covenant with Jacob, I will remember also my covenant with Isaac, and also my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. So what God is saying is that nationally they will confess, admit, acknowledge this sin that's gone on, not only in their, the generation that confesses, but their, their ancestors, their fathers, and they will then admit or acknowledge this, and then God will forgive them. What we need to note is that first of all, the first thing that happens is that there is a admission of wrongdoing, verse 40. The second thing that is present here in this, uh, this, this confessing generation is that they have humbled themselves under the authority of God. That means authority orientation. Third, they still have to pay... In this example, they still have to uh, spend the time out of the land under divine discipline. The divine discipline is still enacted. That's what happened with David when he sinned with Bathsheba. He confessed his sin. God commuted the death sentence, which because he had committed adultery and conspired to commit murder, he was uh, he should have been 
uh, executed. But God commuted that sentence and instead enacted a fourfold discipline that involved the death of the baby. It involved the incest between uh, Amnon and Tamar. It involved the murder of, Ta- of uh, Amnon by um, uh, David's other son, who was Absalom, and then the Absalom rebellion. Those were the four stages of that uh, divine discipline. David still had to go through the divine discipline, even though he had confessed the sin, Psalm 51. He had been forgiven, had the joy of his salvation restored, Psalm 32, but he still had to go through the divine discipline. Now, understanding these four verses in Leviticus 26, 40 to 43, gives us the foundation for understanding Daniel's prayer of confession, which we studied the last time in Daniel 4, uh, Daniel 9, verses uh, 4 down to, or actually it's the whole chapter down to about verse 20. As Daniel became aware of the prophecy of Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12, that God would have them out of the land for 70 years, he was able to figure out where he was on that timetable. And so we saw that Daniel put on sackcloth and ashes. Now that was a sign of his humility. So you can't understand those first 20 verses of Daniel if you don't ground it in Leviticus 26, 40 to 43. He is representing the nation. And he puts on the sackcloth and ashes, which was a sign of grief and humility. And he is positioning himself as a substitute for the nation. And he is showing his humility with the sackcloth and ashes, which is part of uh, the uh, verse 41. And he confesses the sin of the people. And it's not the, it's not the emotion. Emotion can be present. But it's not the emotion that makes the confession efficacious. It is simply the admission of the guilt. And so we saw that as we studied uh, in Daniel chapter 9. Now, that occurs in about 539, 538 B.C. Now, here we have a chart, a timeline of the post-exilic history in Israel, and the names at the top are the names of the uh, key uh, leaders, rulers of the Persian Empire, Cyrus, followed by Cambyses, and he has Smyrtus, and Darius I, and Xerxes, and then Artaxerxes I. And below the uh, brown timeline, you have the key events that took place. Uh, Daniel 9 takes place just prior to this, probably 539. In 538, Cyrus uh, gave an edict to Zerubbabel to return to the land. And in 536, in that box in the lower left-hand corner, you have the first return of Jews under Zerubbabel to build the temple. Now, I want you to pay attention to this order. Daniel confesses the sin. The people then are allowed to return to the land. God in his grace is bringing them back to the land. But have they repented? Daniel did. Daniel confessed. There's no repentance there. But there's no repentance on the part of the people. They have all these problems. They're trying to rebuild the temple. Uh, They become discouraged by the opposition of the various factions that is in sort of the uh, Old Testament version of the PLO. 
and there that are trying to stop the Jews from rebuilding the temple on the Temple Mount. Finally, under the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah, they complete the temple. It's dedicated about 516, 515 B.C., uh, depending on who you read, probably closer to 516 B.C. The temple is completed, not 515 like you have on the chart. I need to change that. Then there is a period of time from the completion of the temple until the second return under Ezra, which takes place about 445 B.C. And you have the second return under, under Ezra, about 445 B.C. Now, Ezra has a major problem. Because the people are engaged in activities where they're compromising with the pagan population. Specifically, they've been intermarrying with the Gentile population, which is a violation of the Mosaic law. Now, it isn't a huge number uh, or huge percentage of those that have returned, but it's large enough to create a potential problem. And the problem with intermarriage wasn't a racial thing. It wasn't that God didn't want them to marry uh, the Gentiles because he, he, God's a racist. It was because the Gentile wives brought with them their pagan religion. And the mothers had the greatest influence over the children. And so this would have been just another fulfillment of that prophecy, that suggestion by um, Balaam back in Numbers chapter 25, 26, somewhere in there, where Balaam encouraged uh, the king of Moab that the way to really destroy the Jews is to get them to intermarry with a bunch of pagan women, and then the women will uh, influence them to get away from, the, from their worship of God. And so this was the danger, and so there has to be a confession. See, there really hasn't been a national change, i.e. repentance. After Daniel confessed, there were other national confessions that took place, but there's no change yet. And the people are still messing around and compromising with paganism and with uh, all of the human viewpoint of the, uh, of the Gentile population there. And so it's time for another national repentance based on Leviticus 26. So turn with me in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 10. Ezra chapter 10, that's after the First Chronicles and then Second Chronicles and then Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And about, I think I said 443 a minute ago, I meant 457 was when Ezra returned. So this take place, takes place right after Ezra returns, about 456, 455. And when Ezra returns... He discovers in chapter um, in chapter nine. We'll start there. He discovers in chapter nine that there's a certain percentage of the Jews that have not separated themselves from the Gentiles, and so they're still being influenced by the religious thought of the Canaanites. This is verse one. When these things were done, the leaders came to me, that is Ezra speaking, saying the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites, so you not only have the people at large, but also the religious leadership have compromised. They have not separated themselves 
from the peoples of the lands with respect to the abomination of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, Egyptians, and the Amorites. What was the problem that led to their being taken out of the land in 586? They had for generations compromised with the Canaanites and become more and more idolatrous as they rejected uh, the revelation of God. And this exhibited itself in this uh, marriage with the Gentile women, verse 2, for they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, that is, some of the Jewish women also married Gentile men, and their sons, so that the holy seed, now as soon as you read the word holy seed, what are you thinking about? The Abrahamic covenant, remember, land, seed, and blessing. So that the holy seed is mixed with the peoples of the lands, indeed the hand of the leaders and the rulers has been foremost in this trespass. This is a violation of the Mosaic law. So Ezra reacts. He says, so when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe and plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. Now his emotional reaction, which is a righteous reaction, is not what makes his prayer of confession efficacious. Like I have said again and again, there's nothing wrong with getting emotional over something we've done wrong. It's just that that isn't what makes God forgive us, or it's just the confession. But this is serious. They may be kicked out of the land again. That's what Ezra recognizes. Uh, Then everyone trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me. Because of the transgression of those who had been carried away captive, and I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. What's going on here is as Ezra begins to read the law, people begin to hear him and gather around him to listen to what he has to say and what he is saying about what God has revealed. At the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting, and having torn my garment, my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. This is a position of obedience. We're studying worship on Sunday morning in Revelation. This is the posture of worship. The root meaning of the word worship means to bow down in humility to someone in authority. Now, here's the prayer of confession beginning in verse 6. What does a prayer of confession sound like? It says, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Now, there's a law in physics that for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. And the action here has been decades of national rejection of the law and sin. Since they got back into the land, they've been marrying among the Gentile people. So this sin has become extremely horrible. And so it calls for an exaggerated reaction because of the horrible uh, nature of this ongoing sin, and the people have just treated it licentiously as if it didn't matter. Ezra goes on in verse 7, Since the days of our fathers to this day we have been very guilty. Now, Remember what Leviticus 26 said? They confess their sin and their father's. That's exactly what he's doing. 
Since the days of our fathers to this day, we've been very guilty for our iniquities. Uh, we, our kings and our priests, for our iniquities at the present generation. Our kings, our priests have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, to humiliation, as it is this day. That's historical, what has already happened in the past. Verse 8, and now for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God. God has not kicked them out of the land again, but has continued to bear with them in the land, just as he does with us when we're out of fellowship. God continues to deal with us in grace, and he doesn't immediately whack us and discipline us as we deserve. Verse 9, he continues the historical recitation, for we were slaves, that is, during the Babylonian captivity. Yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage, but he extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. That's what occurred under the ministries of Zechariah and Haggai back in the era of Zerubbabel from 536 when they returned to the completion of the temple in 516. And now our God, he says, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. That's the, con that's the confession, the admission of guilt, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with the abominations which have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. So this is, again, going back historically to what God has continued to warn them about through the mouths of the prophets. The role of a prophet was to act, act as a district attorney or attorney general for God. He is someone who is pressing a lawsuit from the Supreme Court of Heaven against the covenant partner. You know, we, we get this idea that a prophet is someone who foretells the future. But that foretelling of future events is only secondary to the purpose of prosecuting the lawsuit. This is a contra legal contractual relationship between God and Israel, and as they have broken and violated the contract, God sends his lawyer to challenge them and point out what they've done wrong and what the consequences are going to be. But in that expression of those consequences, God always reminds them of the fact that there will be future grace and a final restoration to the land. That's where the prophecy comes in. And so the, the, I mean, the foretelling comes in. So prophecy is something that does, don't, don't just restrict it to this idea of, of telling the future. It has to do with prosecuting a legal case against a, the covenant breaker. Well, let's go on, verse 11, or verse 12. Now, therefore, do not, Ezra prays, do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons. So there is the challenge to the people not to continue this sinful practice. And then what happens as you get into chapter 10 uh, we read that while Ezra was praying in verse 1, and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God. The use of those three verbs indicates that these activities are not synonymous. Uh, 
Weeping and bowing down before the house of God is not confession. These are three different activities. And then we read that Shechaniah comes up with a proposal. And his, he has an admission of guilt, verse, the second half of verse 2. We have trespassed against our God. We've taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land, yet now there's no hope in Israel in spite of this. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and all those who have been born to them. See, there's the confession of the sin, and then subsequent to that, there's a recognition that we can't go on sinning. See, there's been confession with Daniel, but they kept right on sinning. They kept committing the same sin. Now they're getting the idea that, look, confession isn't enough. It's not just enough to confess and get forgiveness and confess and get forgiveness. And all through this period, from the time they came back to the land up to now, as they've, they've married these pagan wives... You can imagine some Jewish husband to placate his wife. He goes down to the temple of Baal or Asherah and gets involved in the fertility worship. And he comes home, he knows he did wrong, and he confesses it. And he goes back the next week and he does it again. But see, there's no change. There's just confession, forgiveness, sin, confession, forgiveness, sin. But there's no repentance. So there's no real recovery. It's great to be back in fellowship with God, and as we come to the New Testament, we understand that the issue isn't being in fellowship, the issue is staying in fellowship. And if we sin, if we stumble, if we uh, commit any kind of infraction, there is a solution. We just admit and acknowledge our sin to God, and we're forgiven. But then the issue, once we're forgiven, is to grow, and we grow by walking by the Spirit, by staying in fellowship, by uh, abiding in Christ. So that's what they have to recognize here is, okay, we have to implement a plan of change. And so the plan is that they are going to uh, put away these Gentile wives and their children. Why, Why is that? Well, the moms have already influenced these children with their pagan ideas, so there has to be this complete separation from paganism. They can't be conformed to the world. They have to be transformed. So they're going to send away. They're going to geographically separate themselves from the sin. They're going to divorce the uh, pagan wives because it's an illegal marriage to begin with in terms of the Mosaic law. So they're going to divorce the wives and send away the children with with the wives. And so they are. Um, they set up this plan, and they... Uh, discuss it, and then the people say, well, wait a minute, this is a pretty involved procedure, so we need a little time in order to implement this. And so this is described down in verse, uh, starting in verse 9. This takes place late in November or December, uh, probably around 456, 457, 456 uh, B.C. And the people... Uh, who were guilty agreed to divorce their foreign wives, and because this involved people all over the nation, then they said, well, let's give us a, a couple of months to put this into practice so we can uh, do this in an orderly manner. And so they're going to go back to their local towns and villages and handle the situation there. So this only involves 
a total of 113 Israelites who had married uh, of the men. We're not told about the women. Women could not divorce men. I'm not sure how they handled it. It's not clear in the text. And of these, 16 were priests, 10 were Levites, and about um, and the rest were all uh, rank and file Jews. So that was the confession, and then they implemented a plan to change. But did that work? Did that end the problem? No, because you know they're just as sinful as we are, and they had other problems. So as we look at our chart here, what we've been discussing is what happened during that second return under Ezra, 457, 456 B.C., Then there's a third return that takes place when Artaxerxes in 444 B.C. gives that very famous decree that's the foundation for uh, Daniel's uh, 70 weeks and understanding the chronology there. Artaxerxes gives a decree in 444 B.C. to Nehemiah, who is his cupbearer. A cupbearer is the most trusted man in the administration because he's the one who uh, tastes all the food before the king uh, drinks any wine in case it's poisoned, tastes the food in case it's poisoned. So Nehemiah is the most trusted individual, the chief of security, you might say, in the uh, administration of Artaxerxes. And Nehemiah has uh, requested to go home. Artaxerxes granted it, gives him a decree to go back and rebuild the walls and fortifications of Jerusalem. And that third return came uh, around 443 uh, B.C., when they came back. And uh, we see what happens, the, the structure of this in Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah receives word that the walls have not been rebuilt yet around Jerusalem. Now this is some 10 years, 12 years after the events we just talked about in the time of uh, with, with Ezra. And so he that is, Nehemiah, hears that Jerusalem hasn't been rebuilt yet. And when he hears these words, look at Nehemiah 1.4. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. This is his uh, humbling himself, orienting himself to the authority of God, recognizing the tragedy that has occurred, that here God has extended his grace under Zerubbabel and Ezra, and they still haven't finished the project yet. What's the problem? The problem is sin. So he addresses God. In verse 5 he says, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Now what kind of language is that? That's covenantal language. It goes right back to language in Deuteronomy and language in Leviticus. He reminds God about his covenant and his mercy, which is his term chesed, which is loyalty to the covenant, and that um, you observe your, uh, you keep your covenant and you have mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Then he has his request in verse 6. Please let your ear be attentive your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant. Now, of course, he's speaking in terms of anthropomorphisms. God doesn't have an ear or eyes, but he understands that. He wants God to be attentive to the prayer. 
which I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and what? And confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. See, he's going through this same uh, Leviticus 26 type of prayer confession. He says, we've acted very corruptly. See, they got out of fellowship. They confessed. They were forgiven. They got back in fellowship, but they kept right on. They keep ba- they're just bouncing back and forth in and out of fellowship. They, they, they haven't reached that point where they're really implementing a spiritual ch- change uh, in the people. So his confession is in verse 7. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. Where did he say that? Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy. These are passages that we're very familiar with. Deuteronomy 4, uh, 25 to 27, and Deuteronomy 28, 64. So he reminds God of what God had said and what he has promised. And notice in verse 9, you have, at least in the New King James, it says, but if you return to me, and the if is italicized. See, that's the same structure you have back there in Leviticus 26. Um, But you will return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest parts of heaven, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I've chosen as a dwelling place for my name. It's a reiteration of God's promise as we saw in Leviticus 26, 40 to 43. So this is his prayer of confession. Now what's going to happen is he's going to take a group back to the land. They're going to rebuild the walls despite opposition. And Nehemiah is a great book on organization and engineering skill. And they do it in the midst of tremendous opposition. But then when it's over with, they are going to have a time of national confession involving the people. And this is found in chapter 9. So let's just go through chapter 9 and point out these basic themes that take place. Now, on the 24th day of the month of the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and dust on their heads. That's the sign uh, culturally of their humility before God. This is everybody. This is a national assembly. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners. See, they really hadn't completed the implementation after Ezra 10. They had divorced those wives, but then it wasn't long before they're right back into the practice of assimilating with paganism. So now they have to separate themselves from the foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law. See, it is the word of God that is going to be the foundation of real change. They read from the book of the law for one-fourth of the day. Think about that. They've got everybody out there standing up. And for one-fourth of the day, and let's just assume they're not talking about a 20, the whole 24-hour period, they're just talking about the daylight period, let's say 12 hours. So for three hours, night, for a fourth of the day, for three hours, they're standing there while Nehemiah and the priests are 
reading the law orally to the people. And the way they would have done this is they would have had various priests out in the crowd. They might have had 50 or 60,000 people. They would have had various priests in different places reading the law out loud uh, to gr- different groups of people. So they read the law for a fourth of the day, and for another fourth, for the next three hours, they are confessing their sins and worshiping the Lord their God. And then there is a list of Levites who were the leaders in this, and then we have a uh, <clears throat> a record of what they prayed. Now, this is a great prayer of confession, of national confession. And they began with their address to the people to stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. And they're going to do this by ascribing honor to him. This is part of worship. Blessed be your glorious name who is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord, or Yahweh. You have made heaven. Notice a focus on God as the sovereign creator of the universe. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their host. You have made the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all, the host of heaven. That's the armies of heaven, the angels. The armies of heaven worship, the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord God. Now there is a, notice it doesn't go back to Adam. It goes back to Abraham. And for those of you who have gone through Uh, Charlie's Framework Series. This is why Charlie Clough goes through the events he does in the Framework Series, because when you get into episodes like this, as you go through the the Old Testament, whether it's um, this prayer of confession here or what Stephen says to the Pharisees in Acts, uh, what is that, about Acts chapter 8, when Stephen gets stoned, they go to the same key events. These are the events of history on which the plan of God turns. So the first thing they go to is the Abrahamic covenant. You chose Abram, brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldees, gave him the name of Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanites, etc. So the foundation of what they are doing is the Abrahamic covenant and God's unconditional promise. And remember, as we studied that earlier in Genesis, we saw that that's analogous to the believer's positional truth. That is our unconditional union with Christ at the instant of salvation that can't ever be lost. We won't experience the blessings that God has for us unless we're walking in obedience, just as the Jews would not experience the blessing of being in the land unless they were an obedient generation. Then the next episode is brought in in verse 9, and this is an emphasis on God's grace to the Jews. You saw our affliction, the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. That's the next key event in history. You heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders. And it's a recitation of all the things that God did to bring the Jews out of their slavery in Egypt, which is the picture of what? Redemption. As God purchased them from slavery in Egypt same way Christ purchased us from slavery of sin. And then God's leadership, after he brought them through the Red Sea, verse 12, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar, by night with a pillar of fire. You gave revelation, verse 13, down through 
15 is a recitation of God's provision of the law at Mount Sinai, how God gave them manna to take care of their uh, nourishment needs and gave them water to take care of their uh, needs for water. But, verse 16, they and our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks. That's phrases used quite a bit down through here, how they stiffened up in rebellion against God. Verse 17, uh, they hardened their necks again, and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Once again, we have that return to grace. But then there is another recitation of ongoing sin, even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said that that was our God. Contrast verse 19 is a recitation of God's ongoing grace and what he provided for them and how he provided food and water for them again. Verse 22, you gave them nations and kings. This gets into the period of the conquest and then the period of the judges. And then verse 26, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. See, that's their confession uh, of sin. Verse 28, but after they had rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore, you left them in the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Now, the New King James reads, yet when they returned and cried out. Now, that may get you a sense that that's turning or repentance, but that's a bad translation. You don't have the words for turning or repentance in the, in the Hebrew. It simply says, and when they again cried out to you. So this is during that period of the judges when God would discipline them, then they would cry out to God to deliver them, and then God would deliver them and they would commit that same sin again. It's just that cycle of in and out fellowship with no growth, no no repentance, no change. They just kept committing the same problems again. And that goes on until you get down to about verse 32 where you get into the uh, confession again. Now, therefore, God, the great, uh, excuse me, confession begins down verse um, 33. However, you are just in all that has befallen of uh, befallen us. For you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. Neither our kings, nor our princes, our priests, nor our fathers have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies, with which you testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom, or in the many good things that you gave them, or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did did they turn from their wicked works. Here we are, servants today, in the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it. This is their uh, confession. And so they sign a covenant in, in chapter 10, that they are going to abide by the law of the land. So there is a genuine change that finally takes place uh, during this time for a short period in um, the time of Nehemiah. And this is probably, uh, next to Malachi, the last book uh, chronologically of the Old Testament. Now, as we've gone through this, the reason I've done this is so we can learn historically from the Scriptures what confession looks like, and what the difference is between confession and repentance. 
Confession has to do with restoring that relationship with God, but repentance has to do with the application of doctrine that change that is exemplified in Romans 12.2 that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. It's a change that takes place, and this is why when you get into the New Testament, uh, into those seven letters of the seven churches in Revelation, the reason that they focus on repentance is not con- and not confession is that the issue wasn't simply uh, fellowship, although it is with the last church of Laodicea, the issue is they needed to change behavior. They needed to change the way they thought, and they needed to quit assimilating with the pagan practices. There's two or three of the churches, like uh, Thyatira and Pergamum, where they are uh, said to be uh, influenced by Jezebel. They are committing the same sin of, of Balaam and Barak and the Nicolaitans. It's that same problem. There is a licentious use of confession, but there's no change. There is no overhaul of the thinking. So they continue to compromise with the human viewpoint thought around them, and all they're doing is bouncing in and out of fellowship if they're confessing their sins at all, and they're not changing and growing. So we have to draw that distinction between confession, which is one thing, and must precede repentance, Repentance in terms of change in the Christian life because change in the Christian life has to be done under the power of God the Holy Spirit when we're in fellowship and we get back in fellowship by admitting or acknowledging our sins to him. Now, this is what's happened in the life of Judah. He is a transformed individual by the time we see him in Genesis chapters uh, 42 and 43, and we'll come back and continue our study in those chapters uh, next week. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to go through this historical analysis of confession and change and to be reminded that uh, it's not just about being in fellowship, about staying in fellowship, abiding in Christ, letting your word transform us under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit that we may be transformed into the image, transformed and conformed to the image of Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.